Well, today we're going to jump right into our message. Uh, in our message, we have been in a series called All I Want for Christmas. And in this series, we've been talking about different things that we just desperately desire to have in our life during the Christmas season. We talked about two of those things already. We desire, as we talked about last week, to have presence in our life, the, the presence of God. Before, If we realize it or not, loneliness will often manifest itself in a variety of ways in our life. And what we need and desire is the presence of Jesus to come and to fill that in and to be our source so that we don't struggle with loneliness. We also talked about two weeks ago how all of us want and desire peace. We need peace in our hearts. As soon as sin entered into the world, we lost the presence of God and we lost peace in our life. And when Jesus came, he restored peace to us. And today I want to move on to our third message in this series, and it's entitled this, All I Want for Christmas is Hope. Hope surrounds the Christmas story, especially when you are a child. Why? Because children love presents and they're excited about the presents under the tree. And in fact, I've heard that there are some young people in our church that even sleep under the Christmas tree every year getting ready for Christmas. I'm not going to name any names, Macy and Dre Loki. Um, <laughs> why? Because there's hope for Christmas. Now, they, now listen, they tried telling me they don't still do that, but I think that that they still do. We'll get with their parents afterwards. They're excited, right? Why? Because Christmas is, is magical when you're a child. You just, you just hope for the right presents. You just have this anticipation for Christmas Day, um, and you just can't wait for it to show up. Now, when you're a child, you hope to get presents such as a new toy truck, right? You want a new toy truck, or perhaps uh, some of you, when you were a kid, you wanted a pet rock. Did anybody want a pet rock when they were a kid? Yeah, there's a few hands that went up. Yes. All right. Perhaps when you you were really a little guy, you wanted a new BB gun, remember that? Uh, yeah, I love that. Uh, maybe you wanted an Xbox. Listen, when you're, when you're a child, you're, you're wanting these things, you're hoping for these things, and you're, you're just looking for them. Now, the truth is, no matter what your age is, you may not be a child anymore, but you still have hope. Your hopes just change, right? Instead of a new toy truck, you just hope your truck makes it another 10,000 miles. I mean, you're like, yes, come on, Jesus. I just need that thing. Right? Instead of a pet rock, you're just hoping your kids get potty trained before the first of the year. Right? Right? Instead of a new Xbox, you just hope you stay out of a box, like shaped like a coffin, right? You just want to keep going. Instead of a remote control car, like some of you ladies, like, I just want a remote control vacuum, right? I want one of those Roombas, amen? Right? We want hope. We still desire hope, and Christmas has always been surrounded by hope and will always be surrounded by hope. And no matter how much has changed in our life, we need hope. And we need hope deeper than just the superficial things in life. Sometimes we hope for healing. Sometimes we hope that our marriage is saved. Sometimes we hope that our kids are set free from addiction. Sometimes we hope that debt doesn't swallow us. Sometimes we hope that a loved one will be saved. And the truth is, in this Christmas season, no matter where you're at, probably there's an area of your life that you're hoping for something that is more than superficial, but that it is eternal. There's a lot of us that maybe even go beyond that, where we're in a desperate situation where we hope for God to perform a miracle within that situation. Perhaps we're facing a trial or we're, we're facing a situation we just don't have the answers to and we're hoping that God comes through because despair feels like it's starting to overwhelm our lives. And I want to encourage you, no matter how dark the situation may be this morning, that God came to be with humanity. And when God came, hope came. 
Hope came when God came in the form of the baby at the manger story. And today we're going to read about that. If you would, please stand with me as we read today. We're going to be reading out of Matthew chapter number one. Matthew chapter number one. I got a new Bible this week, and I'm very excited about it. Perhaps I will preach better with a new Bible. It does have bigger lettering, all right? You can probably read it from the back row. Like, that's good for me. Matthew chapter number one, starting in verse number 18, it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph... Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did just as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to study your word. And as we read your word today, I pray that it would come alive to our hearts. God, you've told us that your word is living and active. And today, Lord, I pray that it would be living and active among us, Lord, that it would speak to us, that it would revive us. And Lord, more impo most importantly, that it would foster hope in our lives. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this is the same passage that we looked at last week in reference to the presence of God, but we need to look at this passage again in a different light. It's very important, as we talked about last week, to understand that God came to earth in the man Jesus. But on the other side of it, you need to understand what that means. The, the same sentence means a completely different opposite thing, and that's this, that God became a man. And so in the story of Christmas, we understand two things at this very same time. God walked on earth, but God also walked on earth wrapped in flesh as a man. And so heaven and earth collided at the same time in the man, Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why we're reading this passage is because Matthew goes to great lengths to show us that Mary was the mother of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. She was a virgin when she conceived the child inside of her womb, and this was a miracle of God by the Holy Spirit. This was the miraculous conception. This was indeed the Son of God. As the Son of God, he was wrapped in flesh, but his blood was divine, right? You may have heard in church before it said this way, the explanation of Jesus, that he was fully God and he was fully man. And what we mean by that is that Jesus was not half God, half man, like a demigod in Greek mythology. Jesus was 100% divine. He was, he is, and he will always be God. But at the very same time, it's very important to understand that Jesus was also 100% a man. He was wrapped in flesh. He had bone. He had heart. He had to eat just like you and I have to eat. He had to sleep just like we have to sleep. He was, in every sense of the word, a man. And so I think it's a better way to say it like this. Jesus was truly God, and he was also truly 
a man. In every sense of the word, Jesus was God. And in every sense of the word, Jesus was a man. And that biblical reality is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. However, we need to spend a few minutes really thinking of the implications of that truth and the reality of that truth. One of the, the most famous songs in all of, of Christmas, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? If you, Like a uh, Christmas, you know, like a repertoire of songs for Christmas. <laughs> I just went completely blank-minded. Of all the Christmas songs, let's go with that, one of the most famous ones is Silent Night, right? Silent Night, Holy Night. Now, if you have ever been there for the birth of a child, you know that the birth of Jesus was not a silent event, right? Exactly. You can go there. It might have been a holy night. It might have been a holy time when Jesus was born. However, it was far from silent. And if you've ever witnessed the birth of a child, you understand that. The Bible tells us in, in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus was wrapped in strips of linen. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, and then he was laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we have this picture of what it looks like. We have our nativity stories that we like to put up. We imagine Jesus being born in a barn or perhaps a cave with the animals in the evening time. However, if you do some research in the first century Palestine, what you will most likely see is that that's not the case. They did not have inns like what we think of when we think of inns. When we think of an inn, we think of a motel or a hotel, but that's not what they had in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Historians tell us in a town that small that there would not have been hotels. Rather, most houses would have had what we would consider to be a guest room. And in fact, the word in Greek that we translate from in actually means guest room. It, uh, most of the houses in that day did not have barns like we have here in America. Rather, they had a split level house that would be much like what we have here as the floor and the, and the platform. Uh, the, the living arrangements would have been up on a upper level, and the lower level would have been where they brought in the animals at night. And since they didn't have barns and they were trying to protect their animals from, uh, from theft or from the weather, they would bring the animals into the house with them, and then there would have been a trough in the floor where the animals could eat while the, while the family uh, slept and reclined uh, in the evening. And so most likely Jesus actually would have been born and what we would consider to be a living room with people around. Because these inns, the guest rooms, were often very small. It would not have been conducive to birth a child or perhaps somebody was already in there. And so Jesus' birth would have looked very normal to the average birth in the first century of Palestine. And here's what we need to catch. The, the conception of Jesus was the greatest miracle of all time. It was a miracle that has never happened before and will never happen again. Jesus was the one and only uh, miraculous conception. However, Jesus' birth was very normal and it was very natural. Jesus' birth would have been like every other birth in history of humanity. There would have been a lot of commotion. There would have been a lot of pain for his mother Mary. There would have been a lot of worry on the part of Joseph. The baby Jesus would have came out of the womb crying like every other child who has ever been born. And in fact, the birth of Jesus was so normal that the implications of that is very difficult for us to understand. We have to understand when we're talking about the person of Jesus that he had a human body. Jesus was born with the same physical limitations that every other person would have been born with. 
As an infant, Jesus needed someone to feed him when he was hungry. The Lord Jesus needed someone to change his diaper. Jesus had to be carried everywhere that he went. Jesus was presented in the temple like every other firstborn male was presented, and he was circumcised on the eighth day just like every other male in Israel at that time. And that is not how we think of the baby Jesus. I think a lot of us would prefer to think of the baby Jesus like baby Yoda on the show. Has anybody seen baby Yoda? You guys know what I'm talking about? He looks like a baby. He doesn't talk, but he can do some strange things. He can make things like we think that's how Jesus was. He was cute. He was nice. He was little, but he was a little bit above the average child. And that would be an inaccurate assumption of Jesus. A lot of us want to think Jesus came out of the womb with a higher understanding or a knowledge, but that is not what the Bible teaches us. Jesus was a child just like your children. That's scary, isn't it? He probably marked on the wall from time to time, right? He probably did the same things your children did. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus was like every other child. Remember what it was like to teach your child to roll over the first time or the first time your child set up or the first time your child walked? Jesus had to learn how to walk. Jesus had to learn how to roll over. Jesus had to learn how to hold his head up, to tie his sandals, to throw a ball, to ride a camel, how to cut his own food. Jesus would have lost his baby teeth. Jesus would have received his first haircut. Every monumental experience that you had as a child and that you've had with your children, the Lord Jesus would have had those exact same experiences. Humans are born with practically zero natural instincts, and Jesus would have been born the exact same way. He had to learn how to do everything. As a teenager, Jesus would have went through puberty, just like every other child. He would have been awkward, and his voice would have cracked, and he would have been kind of dangly, and he probably stunk all the time, right? How many of you have teenage boys? You know what I'm talking about. Jesus had to learn the skills of how to be a carpenter. That's hard for us to wrap our mind around. The man who spoke the universe into existence had to learn how to swing a hammer, and most likely his father would have been a stonemason. He would have had to learn how to build walls and everything else that comes with laying stone. As a man, Jesus would get hungry and he would get tired. He knew how to put in a long day's work for a little bit of money. He knew what it was like to be in physical danger. He knew what it was like to have the sun beat down on his head. Jesus had a human body just like you and me, and he experienced the limitations of that body just like you and I. Moreover, Jesus had a human mind. Jesus' first words were not, I'm the good shepherd that came to lay down his life for the sheep. No, Jesus' first words would have been mama and dada, just like your children and just like you and just like me. He had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to say, I want more food. His mind had to develop just like every other mind had to develop. Jesus had to learn how to do math. He had to learn how to read. Jesus probably had to go undergo some sort of formal education. We know that he had to learn the law. He would have had to learn the word of God, even though he was the word of God. Hard to wrap our minds around. The thought of Jesus as a baby is one thing. The thought of a Jesus as a child is another thing, but the Gospels make it very clear that that's exactly who Jesus was. He had to grow both physically and mentally. Jesus had a human body. He had a human mind. Jesus had human emotions. As a child, as a boy, as a man, he would experience the same emotions that you and I had. 
As a baby, he would have cried. He knew what it was like to feel stress. He would have known what it was like to be angry. He would have known what it was like to be frustrated and to even laugh. Perhaps Jesus even told dad jokes, even though he wasn't a dad. I like to think about Jesus sitting around a campfire with all the 12 disciples, and he probably said, hey, guys, did you know that the first French fries weren't cooked in France? They were cooked in Greece. (laughs) Jesus was probably sitting around the campfire with the disciples and said, look, (laughs) you guys thought that was a little too funny. (laughs) This one's a lot better if you're curious. Jesus is probably sitting around and is like, hey, Peter, guess what? The Secret Service isn't allowed to yell, get down anymore when the president's about to get intact. Now they have to yell, Donald Duck. <laughs> See? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I guarantee you, Jesus knew how to tell a joke. He knew what it was like to laugh. You know how we know that? Because the kids like to be around him. The kids like to be around him. He knew how to have fun. Jesus would have known times of joy. He would have known times of sorrow. He would have known times of healing. He would have known times of death. In fact, Jesus knew what it was like to lose family members. Most likely, Joseph passed away before Jesus even started his earthly ministry. We believe that because Joseph is never mentioned again after the nativity story. And when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus makes sure to take care of his mother Mary by placing her in the care of his apostle John, which tells us that Jesus, as the eldest male in the household, was responsible for taking care of his mother, which meant that Joseph had to be out of the picture at this point, most likely because he passed away. So Jesus knew even the burden of taking care of a family, like many of you men and ladies in the room today. Now, what's the point of all this? What's the point of all this? All this shows that Jesus' humanity was just like ours. And here's the big idea of that. It's Jesus' humanity that gives us hope in Christmas. Now, why is Jesus' humanity hopeful? We don't want to think about the Son of God messing in his diaper. That's, That's almost repulsive to us. It's something that's crass. It's something that we don't even like. How is the fact that Jesus was born as a baby who had to nurse, who had to be carried everywhere, who had to be changed, why is that hopeful to us? The reason why Jesus' humanity brings us hope is because Jesus, as a human, can perfectly identify with you and with me. When you go through rough experiences in life, it can be annoying when someone comes to you and says, yeah, I've been there. I've been there. I've been there. I see this all the time. We, we try to help other people out by pretending that we can identify with them when we can't. As a minister, I have to go to a lot of funerals, obviously, and I'll sit there and it'll never cease to amaze me when a family member is crying, how many people will come up to them and let me tell you about the time that my loved one passed away. What are we trying to do? We're trying to identify with someone. But if you've ever been on the other side of that, you understand that it can be very irritating and annoying when someone's trying to identify you with you and you, they don't know what you've gone through. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Jesus is completely different than that. Jesus taught, taught or excuse me, the Bible teaches us that when Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, the Bible says he became our high priest that speaks to God on our behalf. 
That is what a priest does. A priest goes to God on the behalf of someone else. When you look at the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system set up by God, and God was trying to point to the work that Jesus was going to do, and part of that sacrificial system was that there were to be priests, and these priests were to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. These priests were to speak to God on behalf of the people. These priests were supposed to bless the people on behalf of God. These priests were mediators between God and man. But what the Bible teaches us is that there's really only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. And so God set this pattern up to point to the work of Jesus. And then Jesus came, he lived as a human, died on the cross, rose again, and the Bible says now he's in heaven as our great high priest who speaks to God on our behalf. And in heaven for us, he is confessing us forgiven of our sin. He's proclaiming healing over us. He's delivering uh, us our victory and he's pouring out blessing and provision upon our life as our priest. He is the mediator between us and God. And those are what a priest does. Now, here's what qualifies Jesus to be our priest. It was not his divinity, it was his humanity. Because here's what Hebrews chapter number 4, verse 14 through 16 says. Since then we have such a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Pause. It was Jesus' weakness as a human that qualifies him to be our great high priest. Continuing on. But one who in every respect has been tempted as you and I, and yet without sin. Let us then be confident, let us then with confidence draw near to be with the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is not unlike us. He is like us. He is like us in every way when it refers to his humanity. Jesus is a representative of us because he lived like us in every way. He was familiar with sorrows, with trials, with the burden of life, with the temptation of sin, the sting of loss, and yet he overcame. In his weakness, he was tempted and he was tried in every way that you and I could be tempted and tried. The big difference is that Jesus walked perfectly. He walked in in complete holiness and righteousness. He was separate from humanity because you and I, when we get tempted, we fall. Jesus, when he was tempted, he stood firm. And that should bring so much comfort to us when we surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior because the Holy Spirit rushes into us and he gives us a pattern to follow. Jesus's life is very well documented inside of this book, and we have all we have to do to overcome is follow his example and his pattern through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have a blueprint to overcome. In short, Jesus teaches us how to win because Jesus teaches us how to walk in his victory. My son loves to play video games. Now, when I was a kid, I liked to play video games just a little bit, Um, and then as I got older, I gave that up because I have way more important things to do than stare at TV, but Knox is still young enough that he likes to play video games, and he's pretty good at it. Now, when I was a kid, we had like the old Nintendo, and maybe some of you would be familiar with this, you could accidentally figure out cheat codes on the Nintendo every now and then. If you take the controller and you press the up arrow twice and the side arrow twice and then hit A, B over and over again, perhaps there would be a cheat code. 
And what that will do is that would give you unlimited lives at the beginning of the game. Well, if you have unlimited lives, then you can win the game no matter how many times you mess up. And so you would hopefully figure out a cheat code or maybe you had a friend that figured out a cheat code, but it was completely random. If you found a cheat code, you're like, this is awesome. This is great. And then you would go beat the game. Now, that's not how this works anymore. Knox likes to play video games, and he's pretty good at it. He plays for a while until he hits a part that he can't figure out. When he hits the wall and he stops, you know what he does? He doesn't put in a cheat code. He goes to YouTube, and he starts watching, and he looks up someone who has played the game, and they're called, like, walkthroughs. And so if he's playing Mario, he'll find the Mario walkthrough, and he'll watch the video of a guy beating the part that he's stuck at. So he can't jump over this guy and then get that guy. He watches the video to see how to do it. And then he pauses the video, goes back to the game, and he replicates what he saw and he is victorious. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. So many people are going through life, and they hit a bump. They hit a problem. They hit a wall. And some people accidentally figure out the cheat code to get through that, while other people get stuck, they get bogged down, and they never move on. But as a Christian, it's not about trying to cheat the system. As a Christian, we have someone who has gone before us, who's already played the game, who's already victorious, and all we have to do is watch his example on how to overcome and how to be victorious in life. That's what you and I do. We go to YouTube. We watch how to fix the car, how to fix the dishwasher, and then we go and we replicate it. Why do we try to do life on our own when Jesus, our perfect representative, our high priest, has already gone before us and set the pattern for which we should follow? Amen. That was a good job. My goodness. <laughs> It don't really matter if anybody else likes it. That was good. I liked it. I liked it. Now, that's what makes Christian Christmas so special, is that Jesus came as a man. And he gave us a pattern. Not only to give us the pattern, he gave us the power. When we surrender our life to him, when the Spirit rushes inside of us, we can follow the pattern, the plan. What makes Christmas so special is that Jesus was not only a man, though. As we said in the beginning, he was also and is and always will be divine. He had divine characteristics. The stumbling block for so many people is the virgin birth. Some people are okay with the idea of God walking on earth. Most people are okay with a man being wise and giving us an example. The problem is when you put the two together, that's the stumbling block. When you start reading in the epistles, you'll see that the biggest heresy that the apostles had to overcome was the heresy that either Jesus wasn't really God, or maybe he was a little bit more of one or the other. This concept of truly God and truly man has been a stumbling block of the person of Jesus all the way back, basically till right after his ascension into heaven. Matthew, in our opening text, goes to great lengths to prove to us that Jesus is indeed born of a virgin. Mary and Joseph did not consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. Why? Because they wanted to make sure that it could never be said that he was anything other than conceived by the Holy Spirit. So that child laying in that manger was truly a man, but he was also truly God. And he had every attribute of God. For example, Jesus had the power over disease. 
Everywhere Jesus went, he healed the sick and he made the broken whole. It didn't matter what the disease was or at what point the disease had progressed or was affecting the individual. Jesus proved time and time again he had power over sickness. Jesus proved he had power over nature. Nature was under the authority of Jesus. On one account, there's 5,000 men and plus women and children who are hungry, and Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed all of them. That doesn't happen at my house. Food doesn't multiply like that. Why? Because I don't have the power over nature. Only God has power over nature, and Jesus was God. Jesus had authority over sin. There was a time that these men brought their friend who was paralyzed on a mat. They carried him before Jesus, and they lowered him down through a roof. And the first thing Jesus said to him was, your sins are forgiven. And all the religious leaders in the room had a problem with that. They said, only God can forgive sin. And Jesus was like, I know. I can do that. Why? Because I am God. And he said, let me show you what's easier to say. Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. And so he said, so you know that I have the power and the authority to forgive sins. He turned to the man and said, get up and walk. And the man was healed. Why? Because Jesus had authority over sickness, death, disease, and sin. And he proved it all at once. Jesus even had control over his own death. John 10, 17 and 18 says this. It says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to pick it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus' humanity showed that he was flesh and blood, and he had to die a blood death. But Jesus said, listen, I have the authority over my own death. I'm doing this because I want to. And not only am I doing it because I want to, when I'm ready, I'm going to rise again, not because someone else is going to do it, because I am going to do it. Jesus had the authority over his own his own death. We could go on all day looking at the, the, the divinity of Jesus, but we don't have time for that. Rather, here's what I want you to see in this Christmas season. Not only was Jesus able to fully identify with man, Jesus also fully identifies with God. He fully identifies with God. And because he can identify with you and with God, that's the greatest hope that you're ever going to have. You can find a story in Mark chapter number four where Jesus is on a boat with his disciples. I'm fascinated with this story right now. The Bible says that the wind and the waves came up and the boat began to sink. They're on the middle of this, this lake. In this lake, the wind and the waves are coming up. Now, these disciples that are with Jesus are experienced fishermen. They've been on the water before. They've been in storms. I love the show Deadliest Catch. And if you watch the show Deadliest Catch, sometimes they get in waves that are 40 or 50 feet. And they don't seem that scared about it. Why? Because they're used to it. They've been in it. And I imagine that Jesus' disciples have been in a storm a time or two. And they're in this storm, but something was different about this storm. It was so, so severe, so fierce that they thought they were going to, to drown. And so the disciples were terrified, and they go to Jesus. And they, they run up there to Jesus, and what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. Now let me ask you a question. Why in the world was Jesus asleep? Why was Jesus asleep? This is very deep, theological. He was tired. <laughs> Jesus was asleep because he was tired. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious when I say this deeply profound, but let's pause for a second and think about that. Jesus, the man who could speak to a person who was born and never walked or born blind 
and he could heal them just by talking to them. He's so tired that he can sleep through a storm that's about to kill him. How exhausted do you have to be to sleep in the middle of a life-threatening storm? The answer is incredibly exhausted. And that's exactly where God was. He was so tired, he was sleeping through the storm. His, he was God, but he was God wrapped in flesh, and his flesh was flat, wore out. So the disciples wake him up. They're like, don't you even care that we're about to die? And Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the sea and says, peace be still. And what happens? The wind and the waves obey. Why? Because they recognize the voice of their creator. Think about that. The paradox in this. On one hand, here's God. He's so tired. He's about to drown in a sea that wants to swallow him alive. And yet when he wakes up, all he has to do is speak to creation, and it obeys. This is the perfect picture of the humanity of Jesus when he's asleep and the divinity of Jesus when he spoke and nature obeyed. That's what Christmas is about. The clash of the human and the divine happened in the manger scene with a child that was crying at his birth. Christmas is the single most extraordinary miracle in history. The dead rise, the seas obey, the sick are healed. That all comes second to the fact that God was wrapped in flesh. And when you realize the power of the Christmas story, when you realize the miracle of Christmas, no other miracle in Scripture will then be strange. We think that, oh man, parting the Red Sea, that must have been pretty awesome. Maybe it was, but it wasn't nearly as miraculous as that child being born. Oh, I would have liked to have seen Lazarus come out of the tomb. That's pretty cool. But it would have been nothing next to the virgin birth. It's a miracle because it touches every single believer. And when heaven and earth collided at the Christmas scene, we have hope. We have hope in Jesus that he can take away our hearts and, we can, and he can turn them to joy. We have hope in Jesus that he can come to him in our suffering and our life and he turns our suffering to sanctification. Jesus, when we go to him, he turns our rebellion in our lives and he closes us with righteousness. He takes our sin and he brings us salvation. Make no mistake about it. Jesus brings hope. Where do you need hope this morning? Some of you today are in terrible pain and suffering your life and you need hope. The promise of the gospel message is in Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, those who are called according to his purpose. Some of you need hope in your sickness in life, and you don't know how you're going to find the cure. There's hope in the gospel message. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He, speaking of Jesus himself, bore our sins on his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Some of you need hope of forgiveness of sin and release from the shame and the guilt weighing you down that's been crushing you, that you've been feeling dirty and guilty for such a long time. But the hope of the gospel is this in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is our hope. He is our hope in everything, and Christmas brings true hope. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to come back. And as they're coming back, I want to invite you to stand this morning.
There's hope in the clash between heaven and earth and the man Jesus. So what's our response to this? What's our response to this hope? Well, if you flip over into the next chapter in the book of Matthew, chapter number two, you're going to start reading one of the strangest accounts of Scripture. You're going to read about these men, the wise men, magi. You start doing some research into these guys there. It's crazy. Most likely they're pagan astronomers. It's possible that they had some sort of reference to the Jewish background from different areas that they came from. We really don't know their backstory. And for our purposes this morning, that really isn't important. But they saw his star in the sky when Jesus was born. Jesus is born, the star appears, and these guys set out on a two-year journey to find the Messiah, the King of the Jews, who was born. And the Bible tells us that they went through a lot of different circumstances to find this toddler, Jesus. Once they finally find him, he's in the house with his mother, Mary. Most likely, he's around two years old at the time. He would have been running around, getting into all kinds of things. And these men, who are obviously very affluent, they're very well off. There's a lot of, a lot of money backing them in order to make this kind of a journey and trek to find this child. And they come to him and they bring extravagant gifts to this baby and they bow down and they worship him in this moment. Why would somebody of high standing, of high class, of affluence bow down to a child? Because these guys realized that this was more than a child. This child was God wrapped in flesh. And today that should be our response to the man Jesus. Maybe you're here and you need hope. Maybe life's going good for you. It doesn't really matter where you're at or what season you're at. The response of every single person should be the same as those wise men, those magi. And that is to leave everything behind. Chase after Jesus and give him everything we have. If you would, please bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning.